Well, I wonder if you ever think to yourself how creation itself is amazing. Ever since the Industrial Revolution, we've become this indoor society. We're boxed in, we're in an office, we're around four walls, no longer surrounded by nature. Therefore, it's easier for us to forget the splendor of creation itself. But when you stop and reflect on the world and the universe, it never ceases to amaze. Take the human body, for example. I'll throw some mind-boggling facts at you. If you live to be 70 years old, your heart will beat some 3 billion times. In the same lifetime, you will produce enough saliva to fill two swimming pools. Probably don't want to think about that. Your lungs consist of tissue just folded in on itself over and over and over again. And if completely unfolded, the total surface area of your lungs would equal that of a tennis court. Your lungs also contain 300 billion capillaries, those really small, tiny blood vessels. If those are stretched out laid end to end, they would total 1,500 miles. These numbers, these figures, they're too much for us to even to grasp, to consider. But it gets worse. In the time it takes for me just to say this, 25 million of your cells just died. And you heard that right. In your body, 25 million cells just died. But not to worry, your body makes 300 billion cells each day. Again, these numbers, we we can't even compute these numbers. They're too big for us. Yet each cell itself is made up of countless atoms, which take the numbers to a whole other level. It's just crazy. Take your eyes, for instance. Your eyes have 130 million photoreceptor cells. Each one of those cells, each cell is made up of 100 trillion atoms. It's more stars than in the Milky Way galaxy. Speaking of stars, when you think about creation at the universe level, the numbers get even bigger. It's just silly. Our universe is estimated to consist of more than 100 billion galaxies, each of those containing some 100 billion stars. That's a total of, estimate, 10 billion trillion stars. And each of those, or many of those larger than our own sun, that's more stars than grains of sand on the earth, more stars. Regarding our star, the sun, one million earths could fit inside of it, but our our star is not even that big. If you've heard of Betelgeuse, a near star, it's estimated to have a diameter of 700 million miles. So if you put that star at the center of our solar system, its radius would extend beyond Jupiter. It would engulf Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. To say that's huge would be an understatement. We don't even have words for that. And then here's this. We, we think of stars as being the biggest things out there. But even stars are dwarfed by the size of space itself. Space itself is monumental. And it's essentially empty. I mean, compared to how much matter fills space, it's basically empty. The, the amount of matter in the universe is negligible. It's so thinly dispersed. It would be like this. Picture a building 20 miles wide, 20 miles long, 20 miles high, this building, huge, containing nothing but a grain of sand. That's how thinly dispersed matter is in space. Space is monumental. We could go on, of course, but when you think of these facts, what do you think? What do you believe? What amazes me the most is that some people devote their lives to studying the stars or the human body or creation, yet they still deny God. What is the explanation of the vastness and complexity of creation and of reasoning creatures like humans? Everyone believes something. Everyone worships something. Even the so-called atheist believes in the trinity of time, space, and matter and worships them as eternal Everyone believes something and worships something. Yet to see the nearly limitless universe, so big that it cannot be seen, yet itself entirely made up of atoms, so small they cannot be seen, and to believe that there is no God behind this, that takes more faith than to believe there is simply a God. That God is behind creation, it's it's obvious. It's a no-brainer. It's evident. 
The Bible confirms this. Let me read for you Romans 1, 20 through 23. For since the creation of the world, God's, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And here's what they did. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This is the saddest exchange in existence that someone would take the glory of God and trade it for nothing. Today, our, our goal is not to comment on those who deny God and his existence. Save that for another time. Our, our purpose today is to set our gaze on this God himself, to view that this God himself and more of his incorruptible glory. Everyone believes something. Everyone worships something. We believe God, and we're here to worship him. Today we're finishing a short little three-part series on the glory of God. We began with the story of God's glory. The Bible and life itself, that, that's what it's about. It's about God. It's about his glory. That, that's it. That's the meaning of everything, the glory of God. And we, we beheld the story from start to finish. Last week we ventured into, secondly, the impact of God's glory. When you come to behold God for who he is and you see his glory, it impacts you, it changes you, it has an effect. And truly when you behold the glory of God in the Son, Christ, it forever impacts you, you become born again. And today though we're ready to dig into the practical pursuit of God's glory. The Bible speaks of God's glory in an extremely radical way. We are told to live entirely for the glory of God, to do all things for the glory of God, to pursue the glory of God in our lives. These are some extreme statements, and they beg some questions. Three questions in particular. Number one, what does it mean to live for the glory of God? Number two, why should I? Why should I live for the glory of God? And then number three, how do I live for the glory of God? And you'll never get even close to answering these questions until you behold the story of God's glory and are impacted by it. But now that we've come this far in our study, we're ready to grasp this pursuit of God's glory in the Christian life. For those who are born again through faith in Christ, you're finally ready to Understand what it means to live for God's glory and then pursue it. You're ready, you're able. And today that's our task. I want to help you today by answering these three critical questions about the pursuit of God's glory so that you may indeed know him and pursue his glory now and forever. So we're going to ask and answer these three critical questions about the pursuit of God's glory. Let's begin with this first question. What does it mean to live for God's glory. What does it even mean? First, let me refresh you on what God's glory is. God's glory is not an attribute of God, like love or omnipotence or wisdom. It's not an attribute. It has to do with his worth and his value. How worthy is God? What is his value? It is infinite. God is infinitely worthy. He is supreme value. And God's glory, then, is his infinite worth on display. It's the radiance of his nature, his holiness, his perfections. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. It means refers to something that, that's heavy, something weighty, something of significance. And God is of supreme significance. There's nothing more weighty, more important than God. So living for God's glory means to live in accordance with his supreme worth. It's to live in such a way that, that not you, not something else, but God is the most important thing. 
you're living to make God look as glorious as he is. If you're living for the glory of God, someone should be able to, to see your life and say, wow, God is glorious. They don't say, you're glorious. They say, God is glorious through your life. You are reflecting God's value through your life, and you do this by living in accordance with his character, his nature, his will. This may be a little hard to grasp for some of you, but but hang in there because we're going to be trying to grasp the glory of God forever. And let me say this, though, that to the unregenerate, all this sounds terrible. This sounds terrible. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to live for the glory of God? Why, Why should I radically rearrange my life to live for someone else's glory. I want to live for myself. I want my own glory. If you find yourself today hearing what it means to live for the glory of God and, and it puts a, a sour taste in your mouth, you think to yourself, I don't, I don't really want that. Then it's possible, if not likely, that you have not been impacted by the glory of God. You have not been born again. We certainly should not expect the unregenerate to want to live for God's glory. That They don't want to. That's the last thing they want. They want to live for themselves, for their own desires, for their own glory. And that is the heart of sin. But for those born anew in Christ, yes, we still have the sinful flesh that wants to rebel and exalt itself. But we have the Holy Spirit within us showing us God and his glory and how valuable that is. And through the Spirit working in you, you come to see God's glory as truly glorious. Those born again, though fighting sin, ultimately find their hearts crying out, like John the Baptist, I must decrease that the Lord might increase. So the unbeliever will never find the answer to the why question. Why should I live for God's glory? Their sin-enslaved, unregenerate nature hates that idea, only wants to live for themselves. But that question is still a valid question for believers, and that actually brings us to our second question we want to consider this morning. Remember, we're looking at three questions about the pursuit of God's glory. First, what does it mean to live for God's glory? But now we come to the second question, the why question. For those who do believe, why? Why should I live for God's glory. Why do I want to do this? Why is this the most important thing? It's a fair question, and let's answer it. I want to give you four answers to that question. Spend a little bit more time here because it's very important you understand the why question. Why live for the glory of God? First, because God's glory is the only thing worth living for. Because God's glory is the only thing worth living for. When you see God for who he is as supreme, what else are you going to live for in comparison? What else is more worthy than that? What are you going to live for yourself, your spouse, your kids, your hobbies, your happiness, your your paycheck? What else compares as a goal in life when you know who God is? None of these things even come close. They, They aren't worthy of your life. Only God is worthy. Living for something else, valuing something else more than you value God. That's the definition of idolatry. That's what it is. That's why God hates it so much. It's taking something that's unworthy and then making it as if it is more worthy than God. So why live for God's glory? Because he alone is worth living for. He alone is is worthy. I understand that this first reason might be a little too abstract for some of you, maybe a little too philosophical. So how about something a little more straightforward to to show you? A second reason now, why should you live for the glory of God? Secondly, because God created you for his glory. God created you and all things for himself, for his glory. Open your Bibles to Psalm 19. We'll look at a few things here. We're going to be skipping over the surface of many verses here today in this survey. But Psalm 19 is where we'll begin. We'll look at a few psalms. Psalm 
God created you, the earth, the sun, the stars, the planets, all life on earth, everything. And he had an ultimate purpose behind it. And what is it? Psalm 19, verse 1, a famous verse, you may already know it, tells us the answer to that question. See this firsthand, Psalm 19. Just look at verse 1. He says, the heavens are telling of what? Of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Literally, the work of his fingertips. And creation is God's handiwork. His fingerprints, they're all over the place. And each one testifies of his glory. God created everything with an immediate purpose. Everything's got a job. The sun gives us light. The stars help us navigate in ancient times, tell the seasons. But all things have a greater purpose, an ultimate purpose, and that is to bring glory to God. Just think about it. Why did God create the way he did? He didn't have to, but he did for a reason. For example, why the sun? So that we would know something of his infinite power and brilliance. Why the stars? I mean, that many, really? So numberless, so vast. Why that many? He didn't have to create 10 billion trillion stars. Why not just a couple thousand to help us navigate the oceans and call it good? Why that many? To give us something of his infinite and eternal nature. To show us who he is. God created the universe so big so that the only thing that would boggle our minds more than its size is the fact that compared to God, the universe is like a piece of dust. It's nothing compared to God. That's why he made it that big. Everything in creation, from the greatest to the least, has something to say about God, about his glory. He created all things to put himself on display. Just turn back briefly to Psalm 8, and we'll look at another verse 1. And I would encourage you to read these songs in length, of course, but for our purpose, just look at verse 1 of Psalm chapter 8. The psalmist understood this, and David exclaims the God he sees in the heavens. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Not only this, not only the the creation, the stars, the universe, God created you personally for his glory. I want you to hop over again to Isaiah now, chapter 43. If you're not familiar, just, just start paging a couple books to the right in your Bible. Isaiah 43. When you get there, I want you to see this firsthand. I want you to see this with your own eyes, yourself. That God made not just the universe, the, the planets, the, the earth for himself. He made you for himself, for his glory. Isaiah 43 speaks of a time when God would gather his people to himself. The point is, he's talking about his people. And notice how he describes those whom he will gather. Look at Isaiah 43, verse 7. He's talking about these people, and he describes them as everyone who is called by my name, and whom I have created for my glory. It's right there whom I have formed, even whom I have made. That includes you. Made, formed, created for his glory. Do you know what is the most valuable piece of art in the world? It's the Mona Lisa. It's the Mona Lisa. You all all know it. It's never been sold, but current insurance estimates place its value at almost $1 billion. And that dwarfs the next most expensive piece of art that has been sold, which was for $230 million. Nothing compared to a billion. Imagine a person walking to the Louvre in Paris. They're staring at the Mona Lisa all day long. And then finally, they turn to you and they exclaim, Isn't the frame amazing? They they totally ignore the picture. They just stare at the frame all day. They they take pictures of the frame. They talk about the frame. They tell their friends about 
the frame. You would think the person to be a little crazy. It's like, look, the frame is nice. Yeah, it's a nice frame. But it's nothing compared to the picture. I mean, where's the real value here? It's the picture. If you're just staring at the frame all day, praising the frame, you're missing what's really valuable here. And as you can guess, creation is not the picture. Creation is the frame. God is the picture. And he created this frame to show himself. Creation is nothing compared to the value of God. He created everything to frame him, to put him on display, that we might see him and then marvel at him. But as crazy as this sounds, some people, most people, they worship the frame. Most people worship the frame. This, as we said earlier, it's the great tragedy and sin of idolatry. Those who exchange the glory of God and they trade it for nothing, for creation. They worship the creation which was meant to point to God. The Egyptians, they worship the sun. The ancient Chinese, the dragon. Hindus, cows, elephants, many other animals. Native Americans worship just about everything. Modern man, no different. Man, today, still worshiping the creation. Only now, it's himself. Still worshiping creation, but now man worships himself. Even the very first sin was creation worship. Just taking your worship off of God towards some created thing. The very first sin. I'm not talking about Adam and Eve. I'm talking about Satan, who sinned before them. He was originally created as a holy angel before Adam and Eve. In fact, he was the pinnacle of God's creation. He was, he was the greatest part of the frame. Yet as all the angels, indeed all creation, sung praises to God, Satan looked at himself, he saw his own splendor, and as scripture says, what happened next? His heart was lifted up. He saw all this worship and he looked at himself and he said, I want this worship. I want this praise. This should be for me. He wanted the worship. This was the real first sin and this was in fact or this is, in fact, the, the nature of all sin. All sin, it's false worship, misplaced worship. And when sin entered the world, all people became false worshipers. This actually gets us, though, to our third reason why you should live for God's glory. Remember, the second reason is because God created you for his glory. But as we've seen, sin defeats that purpose makes you a false worshiper, but God is not thwarted. From the beginning, his plan to create for his glory included a plan to redeem for his glory. So why should you as Christians live for the glory of God? Third now, because he redeemed you for his glory. He redeemed you for his glory. Not only did he create you for his glory, but he recreated you. He saved you for his glory. Why does God act? Why does he save? Why does he do anything? The Old Testament tells us over and over and over again with this recurring phrase. He acts for his name's sake. He saves for his name's sake. His name being who he is. His glory. Why does God forgive? You should still be in Isaiah 43, so just look at verse 25 of the same chapter. He says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. Why? For my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Let me read for you Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Turn a couple chapters to Isaiah 48. Isaiah chapter 48. Why does God forgive? Why, why does God show mercy? Why, why is he patient? Notice again, verse 9. He says, For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. 
One more here, Ezekiel 36. I'll read this for you. It's that new covenant passage. Why does God save? Why does he promise salvation? Why does he give the new covenant? Listen, Isaiah 36, verse 22 and 23. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. He does it for himself, for his name, for his glory. And the conclusion from the Old Testament is clear. God chose a people for himself, preserved that people, protected that people, forgave that people for himself, for his own name's sake, for his own glory. God must do so. He must seek his own glory. For God to seek the glory of any created thing would mean that God would be an idolater. He must seek the glory of his own name. The New Testament is no different. What's the message of salvation in the New Testament? Why does God save? I want to show you. Ephesians chapter 1. Turn there. Because you have to see this all the more relevant for us. Ephesians chapter 1. The New Testament, it doesn't change, but it does become even more clearer. Why God acts, why he saves in particular, why he saves us. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 5. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Why? Well, why did God do this? Why did God predestine us to adoption as sons? Verse 6 to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. What's that purpose? What is the purpose for which God predestined us? What is his will, his purpose for us? Verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. I don't know if you noticed, but three times the same phrase is used. Why did God save us? Why did he predestine us? Why did he adopt us as sons over and over again? To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. It sounds Trinitarian. It is explicitly Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Spirit in Ephesians 1, their work is highlighted as contributing to our redemption. Each of them working, why? For the glory of God. But we're not done. Look at chapter 2. You all know verses 1 through 3 tell about our old selves. We lived enslaved to sin, indulging in the desires of the flesh, children of wrath. We were false worshipers. We were the ones who exchanged the glory of God for filth. But notice the change in verse 4. You know these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God did all this for us freely. We were helpless to save ourselves, yet he intervened. Why did he intervene? In love, of course. But is there another reason? Why did God redeem us? 
freely. Verse 7. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you catch that there in verse 7, he's saying God saved you so that he could show off himself to you forever. God created and saved you that you would be an audience for his glory, to worship him forever. You are the trophy of his grace, continually worshiping and praising the one who earned the trophy. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 form a tight unit on our salvation, what God has done for us. It proves too much for Paul. He has to just break out in a word of praise himself. Notice how he ends chapter 3 in this section. After going through all these thoughts, they prove too much. He says, verse 20, chapter 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Why should you live for the glory of God? Because there's nothing else worth living for? Yeah. Because God created you for his glory? Yep, absolutely. But for those who have been redeemed, no purpose moves our heart like these three words, he saved us. He saved us. Why did God do it? Was it for our good? Yes. Because he loved us? Of course. That we might be with him? Yes. But ultimately, at the deepest level, God saved us for himself, for his glory. He is making us again into frames that we might display his glory. This is why you should live for the glory of God. Here's another important question, though. Do you? Are you living for the glory of God? Why do you live? What is your chief end? Meaning, what's your ultimate goal in life? We all have goals. Everyone has goals. But most of these goals just get us to the next goal and the next. Until they ultimately get us to the last goal. The the ultimate goal we have in life. What's number one for you? What is the ultimate goal? goal that you're living for. I'll tell you how it works for most people in the world. Most people. Starts off in youth and they have an immediate goal, graduate from college. That's their immediate goal, but that just leads to the next thing. Why? So they can get a nice job. Why? So they can make a lot of money. Why? They can buy stuff, car, house, support a family. Why? Because those things make them happy. All the while, they want to save money. Why? They can retire. Why? So that they don't have to work anymore. They can spend their money, enjoy, relax, spend time with their family. Why? Again, because all those things make them happy. So for such a person, what is his chief end? What's he living for? In all things, ultimately, he's acting for himself, for his happiness, And living for yourself like this is a form of self-worship. To this person, the most valuable thing is himself. His chief goal is himself, his happiness. But what did we just learn? Why did God create you? Why did he save you? Was it for your happiness? No. Did all those verses say that he saved us so that we could be happy? No, they did not. Not a single one. He created you and saved you for his glory. So your ultimate purpose and goal in life should be for his glory, not your happiness. But guess what? The God who created you, it's not that he doesn't want you to be happy or to have joy. He created you to have true joy. These are not divorced ideas. It's just where do you think God put that joy? Where do you think he put that true satisfaction in life? Do you think he put it in the things of the world? In the lust of the flesh? No. God put true 
joy and happiness only in the pursuit of him and his glory. Our true happiness is actually only found in God. He does want us to be joyful and happy creatures, but that can only happen in him. People are never happier and more satisfied in this life and the next than when they are living for the glory of God. And they're never more miserable and dissatisfied in this life and the next than when they're living for themselves. Is this not confirmed by experience? The people you see in the world living for money, pleasure, happiness, they never get it. They're never satisfied. Never. Because God created you to only find that true soul satisfaction in him alone. It's the only place that exists. Such people will be forever dissatisfied, even tormented in the next life. Why should you live for God's glory? That there's nothing else worth living for. He created you for his glory. He redeemed you for his glory. We can add now a fourth reason. Because true joy and satisfaction are found in nothing else. Because true joy and satisfaction are found in nothing else. And these reasons provide are, uh, are too overwhelming, too, too much to deny. In the 1640s, a group of English men of God searched the scriptures and they got it right. They grasped the answer to the most important question, the meaning of life. It's, it's not hard. It's not a mystery, the purpose, the meaning of life. And they condensed this and recorded it in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You know it. What's the chief end of man? What is the chief end? What's your top goal? What should it be in life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. They got it right. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Romans 11, 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. The reasons for living for the glory of God are are overwhelming. Yet they can only ever appeal to those who've been born again and impacted by God's glory. Is that you? Have you turned to Christ in repentance and faith for your salvation that you might behold God for who he is? Now, before we move on, let me make one thing clear. These verses and this teaching might lead you to think that God is somehow lacking in glory, that he needs you to fill him up in glory, like like you fill up a gas tank, as if you're giving him glory that he did not previously possess. That is not the case. God's glory, his worth is infinite. He's not lacking in glory, and he needs you to fill him up. But then what does it mean, again, to give God glory? Is this some sort of phony description? No. Think of the moon. Does the moon give off light? Yes. But how? It doesn't create its own light. It merely reflects the light of the sun. We're like the moon. God created us to be like the moon. And when we give God glory, we are merely reflecting his own glory back to himself, to all the universe. Truly, the moon doesn't add any light to the sun, but the moon does showcase the sun's glory in a special way. And that's why God created us, to reflect his glory. Again, the more important question is this. Are you functioning like the moon? Are you living that way? Do you live for God and his glory, and are you enjoying him? Is your life full of the joy that comes from knowing God and living for his glory. Well, at this point, we have yet unanswered our, our, third, and our third question, and we'll finish with this, this third question about God and the pursuit of his glory. How? How do I live for God's glory? We've seen what it means, why you should live for it. Now, thirdly, how do I live for God's glory? If this is the true essence of the Christian life, if this is the most important thing, how do you do it? What does it look like? I'll say briefly, if you're truly born again, I don't have to tell you, it's natural. The Spirit will produce this within you. But it's still a valid question. It's still valid to see what the Bible says. What is the picture of one living for God's glory? 
we could take this so many directions, but I'll keep it concise. And I want to just give you the two comprehensive ways to live for God's glory. Two comprehensive ways to live for God's glory. First, you live for God's glory through your lips. Through your lips. And I'm talking praise, worship, singing, praying, thinking. Any and every expression for God, even if it's just in your mind or you verbalize it with words, God is glorified when we worship him. He wants us to value him, to think highly of him, and that's going to express itself in thoughts of worship or words of worship. First Chronicles 16, verse 29. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering, come before him, worship the Lord in holy array. God is delighted in this verbal praise. It's a very big part of living for his glory. So much so that if you read the book of Revelation, essentially every window into heaven that we get, what do we see? What are they doing? What are the saints doing? What are the angels doing? They're singing. They're proclaiming. They're worshiping. What are they singing? It's not Elvis songs. They're singing songs of worship and praise and glory to God and to the Lamb on the throne. Heaven is filled with such praise, and God wants you praising him now, like that, now. If I can just get specific on one topic here, you can go really far with this, but just understand, this is why we sing songs at church. That's why we do it. It's not because singing is nice, sounds nice, fills some time. That's not why we sing. It's not just some old, meaningless tradition. No. We sing because it's an expression of worship. And we sing to give him glory. Whether it's old songs, new songs, it doesn't matter. As long as it's a true expression of worship and praise to him. But what does it say about the person who comes to church and doesn't sing? They just stand there lifelessly, dully, quietly, while everyone's singing around them. Does that look like a person who has been impacted by the glory of God? No. The heart that knows him cannot help but sing. That's what the entire book of Psalms is about. It's men who wrote and could not contain their love for God and had to, had to get it out, had to tell others about it, had to, had to sing about it. And write it down. Examine your own heart and your singing. Examine your, your thoughts and your speech. Are you glorifying God through your lips? If someone could hear your thoughts and listen to your speech all day, would they quickly think of you, that person is a true worshiper? Is that what they would think? How do you glorify God? First, through your lips. Secondly, now, the second way, comprehensive way, through your lives. Through your lives. And what does this mean? It means that like the moon, you simply reflect God's glory, his character, his nature, and all that you do. You glorify God by being like God, which is why he created you in his image to begin with. We're not talking about becoming little gods, but God wants you to be like him, to reflect his nature. That's how you glorify him in your life. When it comes to glorifying God through your lives, there's a negative side to this and a positive side to this. Negatively, you glorify God by not sinning. You first negatively glorify him by not sinning. This is kind of a no-brainer. Every time you don't sin, every time you flee temptation, every time you avoid wrongdoing, you are giving glory to God. Sin is antithetical to God. You, you cannot glorify God in your sin. You all know the famous verse. Maybe you get it a little bit better today. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned. What's the second half that we usually don't pay attention to? And fallen short of the glory of God. That's what sin is. It's missing the mark of God's glory. His character, his nature, who he is. Or like Paul said in Romans 1, sin is that terrible exchange. You're trading God's glory for something else. 
That's why you can never glorify God in sin. Do you understand that? You can never glorify God in sin. It's not possible. You can never justify your sin before God, and he can never accept it. It's going against his own glory. Do you really think God is going to go against his own glory? Don't make the exchange. Listen to this verse. Don't turn. Just listen along. Jeremiah 2.13. God speaks of unbelieving Israel. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. If you're not familiar, a cistern, it's a big tank or holding ground underwater or underground for water. In the ancient Near East, it didn't rain too often, so it was essential that you had a steady reservoir of water. If you didn't, you very well could die of thirst. What's this verse saying? It's picturing Israel, like in the middle of the desert. And here they had this, this fountain of living water. They had this never-ending, limitless supply of pure water. That's a miracle. But they traded that. They traded it. What did they trade it for? It must be something good. But no, they traded that for a broken cistern that can hold no water. It's like a water tank with a big hole in the bottom. Also known as worthless. That's the picture of sin. Every time you sin, you are trading God and his goodness and his glory for something that is worthless. You cannot glorify God by sinning. Conversely, you do glorify God by not sinning. So how do you glorify God? Through your lives, negatively, by not sinning. Now positively, by bearing fruit. By bearing fruit. Positively, you glorify him by bearing fruit. The Bible, we know this, so strongly teaches you're not saved by good works. Not, not a chance. But that doesn't mean good works don't have a valuable place in the Christian life after salvation. In fact, one of the reasons God saved us by his grace is so that we could do good works. Why? Because those good works glorify him, that ultimate purpose. God saved us so that we might live righteously before him. It doesn't earn his favor, but it does bring him glory. Matthew 5:16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Or hear this, John 15, 8. That's all you need. Jesus said, My Father is glorified by this. I want to know how he finishes that sentence. He's telling you, My Father is is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. That's what he said. You want to know how? It's pretty simple. Bear fruit. In addition to keeping a life free from sin, positively pursue righteous living by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, as outlined in Scripture, you know it's not getting you into heaven, but it does reflect the perfect nature of God who saved you And as the moon reflects the glory of God, or rather the glory of the sun, so you reflect his glory and worship him. Like I said, this is comprehensive. I went big picture with this. Through your lips, everything you say, through your lives, everything you do, it's almost like we should do all things to the glory of God. And that's the point. This is the most important thing. This is life's chief end ultimate purpose. The last question we have is, is it yours? Is this what you are living for? Why are you alive? Why are you alive? You ever ask yourself that? Why are you living? What are you living for? What is your life's purpose from start to finish? People ask, they have no answers. The Bible has the easy, simple, straightforward, obvious answer. Your life has a purpose, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not. And that purpose is to glorify God. But are you actually living for that purpose? Or have you traded it? Have you traded it? Are you living for something else? Have you forsaken the one true God in your life for that which is ultimately nothing? And if you have, why do you think you're so unsatisfied? Why are you still so thirsty? 
is it any wonder? You're drinking sand and you've forsaken the only fountain of living water. If you turn from God and his son, Jesus Christ, you'll never find satisfaction. You may keep running toward happiness, but like a mirage in the desert, you'll never find it. True joy and peace will elude you all life long, and they will not welcome you into the next. Rather, know it is in God alone through knowing his son, Jesus Christ alone, that life has purpose, and it is by pursuing God alone in his glory that life has joy. God and his glory, it's all there is. Do you believe this? Will you see God's glory? Will you be impacted by God's glory? And then will you pursue God's glory? Far from being those who exchange the glory of God for nothing, let us be, like Paul ends in Romans 11, those who say, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we we do confess and we do say just that. To you be the glory forever. We are weak vessels, lost, and we have exchanged your glory for that which is nothing. Yet you created us for your glory, and we of all people especially thank and praise you, for you redeemed us for your glory as well. We are those who have been redeemed, reshaped into frames that can show your worth. Help us now to live just for that. For you, may our life's purpose be what it was meant to be, living for the God of glory. And Lord, I pray all of us here can can understand how satisfying that is. That is not some life of slavery or drudgery. That is the only life of true joy. It's only found in you. And show us that, reveal that to us as we move forward. We confess all the times where we, we fall short of your glory. We still sin. We long for the time we will be with you in glory, never to sin again, perfectly worshiping you. All the while, Lord, in not sinning, in bearing fruit, may we do all that we can in this life to show the world that we serve the God of glory and to bring you much praise. We do it for you. We love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.